You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Data now is an asset. Um, So from a technology standpoint, it's no longer just the software and the hardware, it's actually the data. Cities traditionally have been custodians. I would say to the politicians, we're custodians of the data. So we need technology tools that help us interpret the data and can make good decisions because the data now is the most precious asset. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister, and I wanted to kick this episode off with a little bit of news that I'm really excited about. If you're a regular listener on this podcast, there's a good chance that digital transformation or IT modernization within the public sector industry as a whole is an interest of yours. I know that as the global head of industry strategy for open text public sector business, it's something I live and breathe every day, and I really love learning more about it and discussing more with folks I meet, especially right now. Things are happening so fast that to keep up, you really have to be a student of the game. That's why I love talking with industry experts in government, private industry, analysts, and so many of our customers so I can better understand what's happening and I can work with these other governments around the world to hopefully make them better and bring some of this information to them. So I'm really pleased to say at OpenText, we've launched a new podcast called the OpenGov Podcast that I co-host with my buddy Tom Chapin, who heads up our business value consulting group for global public sector. Each episode carries with it some high-level insights to help listeners understand the digital government ecosystem on a global level and leave them with some really tactical, actionable next steps that they can do to drive change across their own enterprise. Our first episode is live now on iTunes and Spotify. And in that one, Tom and I deliberate the evolution of customer experience and where a lot of the value provided to the citizen really comes from. It's not where people typically think it is. So I think you might be surprised. So I'll just leave it there. It's a really fun conversation. And if you guys do listen, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, on to what we're talking about today. I have been anxious to have this conversation I'm about to have. I'm really excited. My guest is someone that is widely respected, not just in his city, but all over the world. Lauren Sata, the Chief Information Officer for the City of Toronto. Toronto is the largest city in Canada, the fourth largest in North America, but this might surprise some people. It's the fastest growing city in North America as well. Over the span of his career, Lawrence has held some senior leadership positions in a wide range of technology industries, but what he's really known for is his track record of leading large transformational technology initiatives. What I'm most impressed by though is how he leverages his personal background, which you'll hear him tell his story in a second, but how he leverages his background and everything he experienced and learned and brings it to bear on behalf of the citizens of his city of Toronto. Welcome to the show, Lawrence. Thanks for joining us today, buddy. It's great to be here, Brian. Thank you for the opportunity. One of the things I touched on in my opening, and and I'm hoping we can start here, is a little bit about your background. And what I really love about your background is how you harness that and and use it in what you're doing on behalf of your citizens now. Can you tell the listeners um, how you how you kind of grew up and how you got to become uh, a, a citizen of Canada? Certainly, um, I was born in Nigeria. Uh, lived there for the first 11 years of my life and then left to the United Kingdom um, and went to sort of education, boarding school, um, sort of a very traditional British upbringing um, and went all the way to like my university degree, uh, Bachelor of Science in Technology Management and spent uh, 15 years in the United Kingdom. Then in 1997, I immigrated to Canada, um, landed in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in central Canada, or as we call it here in the prairies. And over the course of the past you know, 20 plus years, have worked in various areas of various uh, different jurisdictions. So um, I've worked in the United States. I've worked across Canada, specifically uh, Vancouver, 
And then I arrived in Toronto uh, three and a half years ago in September 1997. Um, and that was really the time where I, I sort of landed and came into this role. So my path has definitely been through um, living in essentially three countries, uh, uh, various continents in terms of Europe, um, North America, and Africa. And that has really shaped the ability that, you know, Canada, specifically Toronto, is the fastest growing um, city. And before the pandemic, certainly we had a lot of people come into the city. And it's the, probably the most diverse and one of the most diverse cities in North America. So with that, you have a really melting pot of various different backgrounds. And I think it's, it, pers- it, it definitely shapes very well in terms of the journey of how I've transitioned through the various countries and shaped a lot of my ethos in terms of the way that I approach um, different solutions and specifically now landing in government because I was in the private sector up until taking this role in September 2017 and, and then transition into this role. Uh, so, and you and I chatted a little bit uh, last, end of last year, and one of the things we talked about is how you you take inspiration from governments, whether it's a, a federal government, local government, um, and anything in between. Um, you take inspiration from global best uh, best practices. Do you think that's something that you you really adopted because you you have such a, a diverse background geographically because I don't I don't always see that from a lot of uh, government executives. Um, definitely I think the more you immigrate or you travel, um, I've always seen it as a viewpoint of inclusivity, if you want to be included, you really have to come into an environment and absorb the culture. And I think in this world with globalization and also with a lot of nationalization, the ability to integrate and to be able to willing to adopt people's culture is what really connects you. So um, I've done travels in various different countries. And every time I travel, I'm very interested to really look at it from a social economic and an environmental lens and hopefully bring those lessons or teachings back. Um, I was in Dubai uh, a couple of years ago, just really impressed in terms of in that region, how they're really adopting technology, adopting data, and just the way that they're trying to, from a citizen, really engage their citizens and make it, which was really interesting for me. Um, and really looking at the fact if they could soon make decisions quickly and how they can absorb that. Then I was in Dublin, you know, looking at that, a fast growing tech, you know, ecosystem, really absorbing that. And then with all my travels in the United States, really learning that state by state, state there is some really interesting and unique um, innovation that is very localized and then looking at the role nationally. So definitely my travels is I absolutely shaped the way that my thinking, um, because I always feel that I'm coming from the outside. So therefore it's upon me to really fit in and try to be part of the contributions to the society. Yeah. And and I think you're right. I was having this conversation with um, an analyst actually today where we were talking about smart cities. And and one of the things that we touched on was it seems like most of the innovation I've seen, especially in the United States around smart cities has come from some of the smaller cities and municipalities. And I wonder if that's kind of a, a crawl, walk, run approach geographically to the US. But you touched on something around how whenever you travel, you you really look for that economic aspect of, of how they're supporting citizens. And I know one of the things that is also unique to you, and I think the city of Toronto is, as as somebody in your role looking around technology, you're really looking at how you can better serve all citizens of Toronto and how you can change things like providing better shelter, um, homelessness. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit and why why those have become your priorities as a as a leader of technology within the city? Yeah, and I'll, I'll give a story on that. When I joined the city, I joined the city as the deputy chief technology officer of um, technology infrastructure services in nineteen in uh, twenty seventeen. And what was really interesting, I got a phone call, and I'll lead into how this really sort of impacted me. 
Um, I got a phone call and it was on a Saturday by a very senior executive who said, Lawrence, I need you to provide Wi-Fi. Is it possible on a Saturday we could get Wi-Fi to a shelter, a shelter, a location to the audience of where people generally who are struggling in, you know, homelessness, et cetera, and it's either very cold or very hot, they create these sort of areas where they can come and gather shelter. So I got on the call, made a few phone calls with my colleagues and the team and seen how we could serve. You know, it's public service. Then over the next sort of six weeks and few months, I got on regular calls as we were trying to ensure that there were various components. So there was real estate on the call. There were various different groups. But what I learned that providing the Wi-Fi wasn't just about the Wi-Fi from a technology, but it was about connecting it, mental health and community. And that really shaped me. So if we look at right now where we're at in terms of the pandemic and all the challenges and we're trying to recover and rebuild and look at our economies, et cetera, um, from the city of Toronto standpoint, you know, a lot of our priorities are focused about affordable housing. How do we do that? You know, it's a very expensive city. How do we keep Toronto moving, which is about transit and moving people across? And that's not just, you know, on our transit uh, uh, subways, you would call it in the United States. Um, it's looking about how people are moving, whether they're biking. Also, how we're tackling climate change as the world is sort of changing and some of the sort of other climate challenges we're having and how we're investing in people and neighborhoods. And that's why it's very interesting because it's people and neighborhoods that really shape a community. And in the city here, that's why we transitioned the name from smart city to connected community. I actually have a manager and a group that is focused. And the reason we wanted to use the word connected community is that we wanted to move away that it's just about the tech. The tech is the enabler. The technology is extremely important, but it's you're investing in people and neighborhoods. And without those people and neighborhoods, you're trying to create prosperity across the, everywhere, as opposed to prosperity in just a very high or a minimum percentage. So that's really how um, it is shaped in terms of and I, how we see that. And I think as technology leaders, we need, really need to understand the why of the business of the people, of the neighborhoods, because then it allows us to be very prescriptive and to be able to be agile and pivot in what technology solutions we're really trying to address those people and neighborhoods' needs. Yeah, and it kind of speaks to the the digital equity component that I, I've discussed a little bit on, on this show. Um, one of the things that I, I think is really unique that you're doing as well, and um, it, we just talked about innovation happening at a small level. Uh, I know you took um, inspiration from uh, actually the city of Chattanooga in Tennessee, and they looked at providing government-led fiber tech or uh, connectivity um, through their power uh, board. And you're looking at essentially making internet service um, and, and Wi-Fi a fundamental essential utility service, which is a little bit different than how it's handled now. Can you speak to that and kind of that inspiration and where you see that that moving towards? Definitely. Um, in terms of what I mentioned on the people and neighborhoods from, from, from our perspective here, we know that the new normal is where there's a lot of vulnerable residents, right? And to have equitable, equitable access to government, to social service, which includes fast, reliable, and affordable internet. We're all walking at home. People are doing online learning. The internet now is a basic human right. It's an essential service. Um, but what we've come to find out, the access and the affordability are two separate areas, but there are areas now that we're finding that is really creating a digital divide. So with that, you know, when the pandemic hit, it just basically turned things up in terms of making sure that it was really out front. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you some sort of stats. In 2015, you know, IPOS public opinion found that 5% of the population in urban centers, that is big cities, do not have access to broadband internet. In Toronto context, this walks out to approximately 150,000 residents. Um, that the high cost of living in these urban areas can make it very expensive and unaffordable to low income. And many low income Canadians have indicated that they cannot afford to pay for broadband service and they have to sacrifice other necessities such as food, clothing, and healthcare, and or they incur very unnecessary large debt. So even with these types of sacrifice, there are, stumps, there are still some people who are unable to afford uh, internet access. So one of the things we're looking at, we tested something called a digital canopy where we worked with our partners and service providers 
to provide high-speed internet to some tower neighborhoods and some buildings so that we could provide that. And we are now really looking at models. And ten Chattanooga, Tennessee was one of those. We've talked to various level of governments about how now government, specifically municipal government, is a strong voice in determining where the investment is going to go into fiber, where it extends it. And in Toronto, we're not looking to be the internet service provider. We're not looking to be the last mile, but we are looking to utilize our assets. One of those are fiber, one of those are other assets to be able to ensure that we can make it accessible and affordable so that those living in this city can have that sort of high-speed internet. And the speed is very important because without the right speed and without the right affordability, then you you really can't communicate. Um, you, you, you can't be part of society in that respect. And I, I like how you you were th- putting numbers out there. And of those hundred and fifty thousand residents, or what it equates to, how many of those are are parents and and children that are having to facilitate virtual learning that are falling behind from an education standpoint that can really affect not only their lives but literally generations of folks within the city of Toronto. So um, such an important piece to be able to prioritize. And it, so you mentioned that. Part of this was inspiration that came back in 2017 uh, when you when you joined the government um, within the city of Toronto. But as you look at at other things happening in in that next normal um, for the city, how has the pandemic really uh, inspired you to to make changes, or, or what areas of focus have you really shifted now that now that we've been almost a year into this? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, as I said, one of the areas is that we're focused on this broadband area. Um, high-speed internet has been a real shape. Um, I had a lot of phone calls from def- different areas in the communities asking about sort of high-speed internet and the component of how we're going to really bring that com- to the city and to our residents. So the pandemic really shaped that. What really shaped as well was equity. It became really apparent how much of a digital divide um, based on the ability to have equitable and prosperity. And that was becoming of a very, very big shape in that respect. And also as well as the digital access, uh, what really became obvious was that the end-to-end service delivery for digital um, was an area that started to really shape. So whether you're paying things online, trying to move on to an online, and some of the social distancing, uh, people can't come into the areas anymore. And one of the things that we really looked at was um, how can we take more of the city services online so that people are not coming in person because they're not allowed to come in person. That really shaped. Another component that was very, very important as well was really ensuring that for such a long time, we've recognized that some of our neighborhoods are underserved and where we really look at where the data is and where some of the areas that are affected through the pandemic, um, what is really shaped is also, you know, when you look at it from a, a, a diversity and inclusion, you know, what are the services and prosperity, those things really shaped, as I mentioned, and really targeting the low income Canadians that have indicated that the ability to pay for some of these services became really. So it, it, it transitioned us. And one of the things that we started doing before the pandemic struck was that um, we had created something called a digital infrastructure plan, which was based on five principles. And it just happened to coincide and was adopted in January 2020. And those principles are focused on how we're running the city, a well-run city. So it became even more evident with the city's financial position and the challenges. It focused on social, economic, and environmental. I've talked a little bit about that. It focused also on privacy and security. You know, the more now, you know, privacy and security became very important. The more we go digital, how secure can we be to protect? It focused on equity and inclusion. It became a really big component how are we having equity? How is data going to be equity? And how are we ensuring that society is included and no one is being left behind? And then it focuses on democracy and transparency. And a simple example, we've had more video conferencing um, ability for virtual town halls, um, a really big growth for our elected officials and our public to try to engage us through the platform. So those things, the pandemic just pushed it forward. I'll give one stat. 
when we had people walking remotely inside the city, our staff, uh, the bad snow day was a thousand people. Within six weeks, the you know I, my credit to my colleagues and the infrastructure team, we were able to take that to ten thousand people. That accelerated way of of delivering that service is was unprecedented for government. It's what we've had to sort of push through. So, I think the pandemic has been positive in terms of showing that government can move fast, especially in a very difficult time. Um, but what it's really highlighted is the equity issues have been long in our communities and and we, we can't wait for another 10 or 15 years we have to try to address it right now and some of the initiatives i've mentioned as a ways that it's it's sort of shaped a lot of our thinking of what we have to do now not in another 10 or 15 years i'm, I'm glad you touched on some of the other stakeholders that i know you support which are the employees of the city of toronto government and when i look at citizen services and and providing um, excellence within a citizen experience. I think one of the areas that gets forgotten is the actual employee that's facilitating some of these services. It's not all just um, a website that they go to. While that's important, obviously, um, but the the freeing up of bandwidth to be able to provide excellent citizen services uh, to the constituency is is obviously important. Um, what priorities have you really um, looked at to support? this faction of, of stakeholders for you and being able to shift them. I look at it as shifting them from a low value work to a high value work on, on behalf of those citizens. What priorities have you kind of set to be able to help support uh, this, this group of people? Yeah, and I'll base it on some methodologies. So in March of 2020, you know, in Toronto here, similar to other parts of, of the world in the West, um, you know, we all went home. So I always like guiding principles because I think when you're a leader and you lead teams, especially very large teams, you 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 want to empower your teams. And I think guiding principles set. So we had what we call the four S's. So everything we do must be stable. You know, we, we can't ensure that we do remote walking and then we have instability. So if we're now taking people from 1,000 who used to walk remotely to 10,000, the ability for 10,000, that includes hundreds and thousands of devices, laptops, tablets, etc. So everything we do, the first principles in the technology services that we agreed upon and it created from leadership was stability. The next piece was scale. Whatever we do, we need to be able to scale. We need to be able to ramp up very quickly. The third S was about ensuring that it was a solution architecture, enterprise architecture. It had to have an end-to-end -end experience. So we weren't just building things in siloed. And that was a lot of pressure as well because, you know, there was lots of information and lots of people, you know, coming at us. We can offer you so many solutions. But at the end of the day, you know, enterprise architecture is a very strong foundation for me. I speak about it. You have to have that end-to-end -end delivery. So the solution is very important that has that integration, interoperability. Um, and that leads into, you know, strong APIs, application program, programmable interfaces, the ability to ensure that your your source and your code can interoperate. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth piece was uh, sustainment. So making sure that it was secure and sustained. So we don't, once we come through this um, one day, um, we can ensure we sustain. So those guiding principles, I will tell you, were the tenants the four-legged stools that held us. Then within the priorities, our priority obviously was safety. So making sure that we can provide solutions that are safe. So we helped our um, Toronto Public Health build uh, a case management coronavirus system. We built it in six weeks. Uh, got it out. We're able to help them move through. We helped our people in equity called our human resources build a way to ensure that um, when people were calling on payrolls or calling on human resources, we had a central area. We built various different remote walking in terms of there. So I'll, I'll give an example. Um, we were able to ensure that there were over 13 plus new mobile contact centers what is for our 311 service, our Toronto um, um, public service, so that now people can walk remotely and take calls. Um, we supported daily media briefings because clearly our elected officials had to have 
daily uh, briefings, which was virtual town halls as well, making sure our staff were connected through mental health. We had lots of critical solutions. We implemented the city's first chatbot, um, conversational chatbot, working with partners um, in that respect. We put together a COVID-19 dashboard because we were procuring PPE equipment, et cetera. So that had to be formulated. And we provided, as I said, free Wi-Fi to 25 residential buildings in priority neighborhoods in partnerships with our vendors and civic tech communities. We you know, worked with our partners for hotspots in nine shelter locations and 24 by seven access of Wi-Fi to 10 city operated long-term care. So I can go on, but it just those it was those principles of those four S's that really solidified the foundation and then just empowered our wonderful team. I can't speak so much about the people, um, dedication, hundreds of hours, but this vision was planning. We took certain steps um, three years ago to almost get ready for this. So um, in that respect, it's about business continuation and it's, it's about disaster recovery. And we had the right leadership complement at that stage. It was just coming together. And then you just really empower people and they just went. And you know, I'm so proud to have been part of that journey with them. I think it's so important that you are falling back on the principles and the foundation. And obviously the pandemic was a motivating factor, right? It it took public sector entities and really motivated them in, in, a, in a draconian manner really to drive change. But it's the discipline that really holds you true, not, not the motivation, because ultimately that's going to go away and you move on to the next thing. So falling into those foundational uh, principles is so key. Uh, a couple of questions, though, I have around these. Uh, one, and you talked to end-to-end experience and the importance of interoperability. Is this something that you are looking to decentralize from a technology standpoint? And what I mean by that is by laying the groundwork for an end-to-end experience and a platform that really supports the government, it could in essence, decentralize some of the procurement for um, certain agencies and departments to procure um, kind of disparate technologies to be able to fold in to their enterprise uh, or in, in support of their mission. But it, it could also beg the question is, uh, beyond allowing that decentralization, a shared services model where you're able to consolidate into a singular platform or, or a, uh, a platform that maybe brings to bear some some of the things that these disparate technologies would, in in essence, if it were decentralized. And hopefully this question makes sense, but are, are you looking to consolidate vendors or are you looking to allow these departments to be able to make those decisions based on the mission and kind of open up those procurements? Well, we're going to more of a centralized-based model. Um, mm-hmm. We're quite decentralized right now. And I think when you look at very complex um, end-to-end solutions, and that's not just the technology, I'm talking about the business process re-engineering as well as the change management, um, to be able to have interfaces, service interface. So for example, you want to make a payment. That payment needs to talk to our backend services. That mm-hmm. backend services has to report to data. That data has to let you go into results-based and trying to take government to more results-based outcome. Um, you do want to be able to interconnect with other different environments, um, but you do want some level of standards. Um, you want some level of standards, and those standards will help you drive speed and execution. So we're looking at a shared services model in some areas that involve some of our other partners. So how do we share? And obviously, this is all about compliance and making sure that things are good from uh, that piece. So that's good to be said. But the... the, the, the if you don't have the right inf- interfaces and your technology cannot communicate through these interfaces, that's why I'm a really big, you know, ad- advanced supporter of ensuring the interfaces are through the APIs. It doesn't matter what technology is being used. Um, so we're looking to create that. But what we're trying to do is have the technology services division, which I lead, uh, provide the oversight, provide the guidance ensure that from a accountability standpoint, we're setting the roadmap. We're talking about 
the four S's. We're talking about interoperability. You want to connect into the city? Well, these are the standards, um, having those principles and those plans. So therefore, you don't just create a sort of a whole area where it's just a mesh and it's not coordinated because it's about the citizen or the customer experience. So it's, it's really trying to look at centralization, but it's not trying to look at control, right? We're not trying to say, um, you know, we cannot have innovation because you don't want to stymie innovation. We're just trying to create a more centralized ecosystem that allows the economies of scale. So, for example, if we're using a particular platform and we have a contractual agreement as an enterprise, it doesn't make sense that we have other different instances floating all around the city which then doesn't give us economies of scale to get the really best solution at the best price. But with that said, there are some, you know, there are some innovation that may be built in, in, you know, in, in really great areas. The key for us is that how do they connect back to the sort of central body? They don't have to be the same provider, same platform, but what are the interconnections? And those are the sort of the principle um, that allows you to move. And everybody is looking for that experience of the end to end. And when you're trying to now break silos and say, well, you know, how do we connect to this and, and those areas? And I think those are some of the principles that artificial intelligence has done. Those are some of the principles that we're seeing with some of these newer technologies trying to connect the block. Um, so the service interface, the interoperabilities, the APIs, and the standards, and the oversight and the accountability is what we're looking to centralize from our perspective um, to create a shared approach and allow us to the private sector as a way to offer them a common component, right? So that they can interconnect and they can engage with us to provide solutions. And more of our environment is going to the cloud. So it has to be that way of the service interfaces, the interconnections and the common components that will connect into the way we create that end-to-end experience. Yeah, and, and that, that second S, scale, um, really speaks to kind of what you just said, cloud. It, it kind of speaks to the, the scale and flexibility that you can provide your citizens and your employees within the city of Toronto. Um, have you noticed that, have you noticed that as you're able to shift um, to the cloud or move things over to the cloud, um, as you prioritize that area of, of your mission, that you're getting those economies of scale? Um, I think that um, what we're getting is agility. Um, and we are certainly getting what we see as an ability of how you turn up and how you you, you essentially buy on demand, right? Um, sometimes in the cloud, there's this notion that it's you know going to save you money and you're going to create that, and it's really about actually finding out what your true costs are, right? Um, because and that's really what I found. So you know it takes a transition. So you go to a cloud, whether it's a software as a service, a platform as a service, an infrastructure in your service, and then you try. To see your true cost. And sometimes those costs are buried underneath the operations, right? They just get absorbed. So for example, you want to stand up a new platform, you build a new environment, or they're usually done through a capital. You know, the cost comes up front when you capitalize. Um, cloud is really is about operational expenditure, OPEX. So what the cloud has really shown you is that what is the actual real true total cost of ownership over a life cycle of a time? Um, but what it's really done is that it's it's transitioned our skill set, right? Um, we are now trying to create more value where um, our teams are not focused on racking or stacking or cabling because we're looking at somebody else's um, data center to provide that. Our teams are moving up the value chain. So um, I would say that from an economies of scale, what it's done is really centralized, but in terms of driving down cost, it's it's really actually exposed really what is the cost and what is the what is the business case in terms of why you want to do this and and uh, and I say the economies of scale is about speed, agility, more reporting, accuracy, um, you know, having end to end data, and also ensuring that we're not on premise. I mean, our vision is to have 80% of our environment in the cloud in, in, in the next few years and 20% on-prem. So you're still going to require some on-premise, but um, some of our partners aren't building on-premise solutions. So I would say that the economies of scale has been really looking at your true cost, which can help you make good decisions in terms of what is the real true cost of maintaining some of this legacy environment and does it need to stay and how do we shift our costs from a capital to an operating expenditure? Well, and I think that's one of the reasons why 
some of the innovation empirically within the public sector at every level has has stagnated a little bit is because there were those operations and maintenance costs um, going into managing the legacy infrastructure you had and and the on-prem environments. Whereas you can shift to the cloud and really, like you said, you, you're not it's not true cost savings, right? It's really just paying for consumption, but you're able to then repurpose some of the some of the delta. Uh, budget into some of those innovative um, priorities, and and that's really, to me, what's driving a lot of the the cloud migration is um, being able to leverage some of the emerging technologies you want to bring into bear um, to an enterprise. So as you look to the next normal um, for the city of Toronto, what are some of those emerging technologies that cloud is enabling? Um, that that you're going to be able to bring to bear uh, in the in the next few years on behalf of the constituency. Yeah, one of the areas we've run a platform uh, pilot is the customer relationship management system. Um, our ability, we're working right now to be ensuring that there is a, you know, we talk about omni-channel. How does the citizen, citizen and resident approach us? So we really want a front-facing environment. So we're working on a platform, a very large platform, uh, an enterprise platform that will allow that engagement through that piece. So that's the one piece. It's a, the CRM platform. Another piece as well as it we're working on is to take um, our, which standard is back office, but we're moving, you know, to essentially... Um, moving our email platform and our collaboration tool all in all in the cloud. That's going to happen this year. Now, it's not just about email, but what it really is is about is the ability to have a unified collaboration suite. Right? I can give you an example. Um, a lot of emails are used generally for document management. Right? I email you a document version one. I email it. It's 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 back and forth. Well, what happens if we can walk on that gov on that document in real time? So, in the private sector, this may sound why well, they're so far behind, but for governments, you know, big organizations, that's very important. It will just reduce product. It will increase productivity, reduce a lot of time. So, our collaboration suites are going to go online. That's scheduled for 2021 in terms of the cloud. That's going to go online, and that what that will do is as well as that it will allow us to be able to service some of our casual workers um, who don't necessarily have a device. It will be able to secure them so they can use their own home device. And we've heard this phrase, bring your own device, right? It creates a world of opportunities now. Um, mm -hmm. We don't have to deploy you. You don't have to be on a physical city sort of device. We can do that. That's another big component that is looking there. A lot of our other solutions in terms of how we are looking at the ability to deliver services, whether it's eventually going to be uh, recreational systems, reservation systems, etc., will have to move into the cloud. And you're right, it's really trying to shift. I can tell you that just managing our email environment and those components, there's a lot of infrastructure to do that, you know, in the double numbers. So now we want to shift those staff to, to sort of do those services. Another component that we're really looking at for innovation is that we did a pilot in terms of trying to address through artificial intelligence, some of the areas, what 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 is really driving some of our, you know, our, our citizens and residents, what are sort of the nuggets in terms of why they're becoming homelessness? So I like to say to people, we are custodians of data, but we generally haven't linked the data to have predicted so we can make predictive decisions based on good probabilities about where we invest. So another piece that we've really done working with some of our social services is run various pilots using machine learning. I see that really taking off more and more as we sort of do that. So, um, and what that has meant is that we're now scaling down our on-prem significantly. Um, there is usually a few years of transition in that component. It's not just shut it off and turn it on one day. Um, but the ability to deliver a good customer experience, the ability to ensure that there's choice of omni-channel. And our chatbot was an example. It was a conversational IVR that was done. It was majority in the cloud with service interfaces that connected back to us. But we worked with, you know, very big uh, providers on that to ensure that we're going to sort of build it. And I would state that one of the things that also I can't underestimate in terms of talent and skill sets is the ability for government 
from the private sector to to really attract very talented people who want to come and serve. Um, you know, software developers, software engineers, um, data analysts, machine scientists. Some of these roles traditionally don't exist. Um, and what we're trying to do is really look at how we shape and create some of these roles and say to people, there is a place for you here in public service. And it's not just, there are things that can move very fast because there is now a new breed of leadership that is coming from and asking those questions in terms of how can we do things more agile. So the examples I've given you on the customer relationship management, moving our collaboration suite to the cloud are just some examples of things that are happening in progress as we speak. So one of the things you touched on, obviously, is the collaboration tools like like you, like you just described. And obviously, it's facilitating more and more remote work. And I think uh, as we move forward, even away from the the beginning of the pandemic, uh, remote work is going to be here to stay for a long period of time. I think it's one of the reasons why uh, folks are leaving Silicon Valley. You touched on talent and being able to recruit talent into public service. Is the the appeal of remote work and, and being able to tap into different talent pools on behalf of the city of Toronto, something you guys are leveraging already? Um, you know, each jurisdiction obviously has, with, with remote work also comes what your remote work policy should be from a human resources, right? Um, and also it comes with where sort of, you know, where you can walk. Um, and I think that's evolving. I can tell you before the pandemic, the culture in the city was everybody came into the office and everybody did that, similar to many governments. I think now it's opened up our you know, open up people's thinking a bit more. Um, and where that talent, maybe it's still within the province of Ontario. Ontario is the largest province in Canada. But maybe somebody who walks three or four hours away who maybe have not, you know, considered walking at the city of Toronto, but in the future, they walk a hybrid. They don't need to come into the office five days a week. Maybe they need to now come in one day once we get back to it. But we can now tap into talent further in the province than maybe we could. Um, and as the province is so large, you know, there were people, people that may have not considered us. So definitely, I think that really looks into, uh, it creates a much more broader piece. And it's still evolving. Uh, of course, our human resource partners, you know, are the ones accountable for the remote work policy in terms of what those policies. But technology is no longer the barrier in terms of how that remote wants policy wants to expand. It's really a business decision. Technology now has seen that we can really sort of attract people um, in geographies, uh, and in this case, maybe more focus in the province at this stage. But now people are maybe considering it and their ability, their walk lifestyle, right? Their walk lifestyle is sort of different. If I can now do my walk at different times, um, I don't necessarily need to be in a physical location from nine to five. And, and really, it's about delivery. So that's tapped a whole new different piece. But I think also what has been really interesting on talent is that podcast of these, the ability to get out on communicating the message to the public and recognizing the public servants, you know, and getting your getting the story out. I found a lot of uptake with people saying, never realized City of Toronto was involved in this, never thought about this. And I think also the ability to communicate on social media and to get the message out that there is a lot of attractive things when you come to government and, and there are things that we can do. And yes, it's a business model that is about serving the public and through the elected officials. But it's not the government of old. It's about the government looking forward thinking and really want to actually take action to execute something in as quick as time as possible based on our governance standards. So we've covered so many different technologies, social issues, policies, and your remit is is massive, obviously. I mean, like you said, uh, City of Toronto is one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing city uh, within North America, how do you stay on top of all the different technologies and all the different policies and, and different areas of focus that you need to be so sharp on within your role? Um, there's a realignment of our teams. So one of the team, one of the things we do, we did was that I did a realignment where I created a, a digital. Um, digital sort of uh, role whereby I have a, a group that are very much focused on agile work, 
on the acceleration of some of those service interfaces I talked. We also have uh, another group that focuses on a lot of the underserved, the equity component I mentioned, and some of the internet, high-speed internet walk. And then, you know, from my component, it's just a passion of the subject. I think you're, you're having conversations with people, read a lot, and just put it in the time, right? Um, I'm a technologist through my DNA. So there's material that I constantly on my own time, I'm always researching and looking at. Um, but it really speaks to leadership. Um, I'm, I'm very focused on ensuring that people are in the right roles to the right leaders. So therefore, they help me prepare, they help us prepare. And I give them the sort of guidelines that they really go out and they share so much with me. So there's a lot of information that comes my way about what other countries are doing through the various teams, what our area. And I think it's just been a very, you know, integrated people leader. Um, and I think also from my case, because I've traveled so much um, and, and, and spent a lot of time in different jurisdiction. I find that now there's just a lot of things that I may have learned a few years ago that I'm now seeing that I'm now really utilizing those skills or it's coming into play because every scenario is a little bit different. Um, and on the technology, I just, I'm just very passionate about this stuff of constantly reading and absorbing and then trying to figure out how does that um, get integrated into our new world. But it's a big portfolio. There's no question. It's very large, but um, you, you have to surround yourself with very good people. And more importantly, you have to build very good teams, very good teams that can really collaborate and break down silos. And then they help just give you energy and help you essentially address. And the way we've moved at speed it's really about the team that has really made that. And you're constantly trying to recruit and hire people who have that, who are part of those guiding principles, right? Who who, who there, you, you can get very talented people, but what is the fit? What is what, How are they going to complement and augment the team? And and that's really the approach. It's a very, it's a very strategic recruitment approach. Um, and it's also looking at diversity and inclusion because the more you have different voices and different thoughts, we're able to create. So I never feel like it has to be all on me. But what they do is that they really help bring information that I would be, oh, I never knew this country was doing that. And then all of a sudden, I'm researching on my own, right? Because I've been told this, and I'm now trying to connect the dots. So that's usually how it is. And you've got to have a lot of energy and, and also mental health and take care of your health. And I think you need to look at this as just bar a job for me. It's, it's a way of life. And you've got to really enjoy this because the um, the commitment and the various stakeholders to manage is very intense. So you've got to be able to understand that, you know, you're here to give and you've got to give as much as you can for the time that, you know, you're here and, and plan very, very strong succession. Um, I'm very passionate on that, making sure that there is enough other leaders, whatever their positions or titles, they can represent us as various tables, make decisions and drive to execute. Execution and delivery is extremely important. I love that. And some really good advice in there um, for a lot of leaders to to really take heed of and, and follow. And so before we go, there's one, there's one area that I wanted to touch on um, that I know you have uh, some background in. And it seems to be coming more and more pervasive within public sector. Uh, we touched on it earlier around smart cities or uh, connected communities, as you're calling it. But um, even beyond communities, uh, IoT seems to be making its way deeper and deeper into the enterprise of uh, every level of government, honestly. Why do you think that is? And where do you see the future of that going? I've heard things around sanitation drones for smart cities or connected communities, um, connected workplaces for the employees of the city. What what are you looking at from um, a connected approach? And, and what are you thinking or where are you thinking this market is going uh, in the next few years? Yeah, it's a really good question because before I joined the city, um, I walked in an organization that was focused on the industrial internet of things and, you know, walking very much on some of the manufacturing sector. And I think if we look at whether it's private or public sector and we focus on public sector, more than ever, government needs to do more with less. Um, 
our revenues are not increasing, our costs are. Um, the pandemic has really driven that. And in our case, um, you know, the city is in a very str- uh, challenging financial position. So when you're asked to do more with less and the need to drive efficiencies and demonstrate value for money, and in our case, it's the taxpayer's money, um, there is one that aspect of the in, in, um, Internet of Things in the right circumstance can really help. Uh, one particular area where IoT has been very helpful at the level of government is with the asset management. You know, sensors embedded in water mains, we've had that, can really help detect leaks faster than traditional methods, which in turn can help prevent more catastrophic failures, burst pipes, localized um, flooding. And disruptions such as traffic caused by road closures. So IoT can really help that in identifying construction booth and which can lead into trying to reduce long-term financial and environmental benefits to the city and its residents. Another reason for the increasing use of IoT, we really think, is that these devices can really help create those efficiencies by simply making government function better. The use of smart sensors is another example in traffic signal systems um, to reduce the amount of people it takes to time for people. So um, when you spend a lot of time in traffic, you know, back in the days when we used to travel a lot, you recognize is that can you use those sensors to really send back information to make me make better decision? And so in turn, it will have a positive impact on productivity, hopefully the environment and society in general by those small ways and it will sort of you know help us and the city right now is focused on something called vision zero which is uh, looking at uh, sort of speed cameras for example um, looking at different ways that we can use the internet of things Um, but with all those benefits we do have to be very mindful about the uh, sensitivity of the data we have to be very mindful of some of the you know privacy and uh, social areas and we see IoT being utilized. So I believe that there's good benefits there that we could really use to make government better. So the Internet of Things is really becoming a very essential component, given some of the examples I've mentioned. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Lawrence. I appreciate you joining us today. But before you go, any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Uh, I just want to, you know, I think that um, it's a great, even though with all the challenges we're facing right now on safety and the pandemic and trying to reduce the spread of the virus and get the vaccine, um, I think as technologists, we play a very important role. And I think it's important that those people who are chief information officers, chief technology officers, it's elevating our role to be business partners so that we're not so much focused on just technology as a support or a back office, while those things are important, um, I think we can use this opportunity through this pandemic to elevate us at at, at the right table. So um, that's really what I'm very excited that we're now being seen as, you know, you you talk about the finance, you talk about the budgeting, you talk about the strategy, you talk about, you know, sales, you talk about all those areas. The C officers of the CIOs, CTOs, or whatever title is being used in the in the technology or leadership position now has to have a seat at the table because everything is interconnected. You need technology to really achieve a very basic and essential and good quality of life. So I hope your le- listeners enjoyed this. Thank you very much, Brian, for the opportunity. It's it's great to to to, to speak with you, and uh, I've really appreciated the conversation and enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for joining. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ChittisterAB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.